It's that time of year when photos from local college and university commencement ceremonies and Capital Region High School proms are splashed across social media and our Times Union scene galleries. Congrats to all of our graduates. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. Kathy Hochul says she wants to tighten up the state's red flag law that prohibits firearm possession for people who are deemed to be a credible threat. We'll discuss the results of this week's school board elections across the capital region. When I was out there talking to voters, it was immediately obvious that there was huge turnout. And what happens to the tulips after Tulip Fest? We'll talk to Albany City Gardener Jenna Comerford. When you snap that seed pod off, you're literally sending all of the energy down instead of up. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's talk top headlines. Let's go first to the state and local response to the tragic mass shooting in Buffalo last weekend. Governor Kathy Hochul has said, quote, enough is enough. She's promised to take action on a number of issues that are directly related to gun violence and domestic terrorism. Uh, Tell us more about what we saw this week. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the killings at the top supermarket in Buffalo last Saturday, allegedly by a white supremacist teenager who videotaped and live streamed the entire event, hits home for everyone in the state. It is for Governor Kathy Hochul a hometown event. She is she is from Buffalo. And uh, she was, of course, at the scene um, very quickly uh, after the, the killings, which was, of course, a national story. All week long, we have been hearing responses from politicians. Kathy Hochul says she wants to tighten up the state's red flag law that prohibits firearm possession for people who are deemed to be a credible threat, whether due to criminal history or mental health issues. She also wants uh, more to be done to investigate uh, white supremacy around the state. And also, and probably most controversially, uh, she wants to go after social media platforms that she has said could potentially be facilitating or helping sort of fan the flames of this sort of extremism. The alleged shooter in the Buffalo Massacre, of course, evinced and supported uh, so-called white replacement theory, the idea that immigrants, black and brown people are coming to take over the country and render white people a minority, which is, of course, a, a racist conspiracy theory. 
It has also turned into a very contentious week for uh, Representative Elise Stefanik, the number three Republican in the House. Uh, Last fall, she posted up a series of ads that played footsie, I think would probably be the most accurate way to describe it, with uh, white replacement theory, claiming that Democrats were trying to create a permanent electoral insurrection by granting amnesty to undocumented immigrants and, um, and giving them the vote, which is pretty much a fringe position within uh, the Democratic Party. But uh, she continues to push it. She has been unapologetic all week, seeing no connection between the beliefs uh, posted by the alleged shooter and her own rhetoric. All right, more on that. Uh, Visit our Capital Confidential section at timesunion.com. Sticking with some state news, uh, Albany County Sheriff Craig Apple has announced his intention to run for state Senate in a brand new district. Tell us more about that. Yes, all of the districts are brand new, of course. These are the, it's the electoral map, in this case, the state Senate Senate map, drawn by uh, a special master appointed by a court in uh, Western New York. Of course, Republicans challenged the maps that were drawn by Democratic state legislators. That case went all the way up to the State Court of Appeals and the Republicans' uh, argument that the original Democratic drawn lines were gerrymandered prevailed. This has created absolute chaos. While it's been uh, very notable uh, when it comes to the congressional lines that were drawn, where all of a sudden you've got a number of Democratic uh, incumbents facing the prospect of having to face off against each other in primaries, which will be coming in August. It's also created opportunities for um, local elected officials, and that includes uh, Sheriff Craig Apple, who, uh, as you noted, has said that he wants to run in the new 43rd Senate District, which runs along the New York, Massachusetts border, where he has a residence over in Rensselaer County and northwards that would run basically from a little bit north of Fort Edward down to Nassau. There have been others who have said they might want to jump into the race. The district uh, is sort of held right now by Daphne Jordan, Republican state senator who lives in Half Moon, but that town is not part of the new district. So people are going to have to call their real estate agent if they want to uh, run or at least serve for these seats. Craig Apple, of course, attracted statewide, if not nationwide, um, fame or notoriety, depending on how you look at it, after his office filed a misdemeanor forcible touching charge against former Governor Andrew Cuomo. This is related to the complaint filed by Brittany Camisso, a former gubernatorial aide. That charge was the subject of much controversy over the way it was filed. It was filed without the Albany County District Attorney's knowledge, the District Attorney David Soares ended up asking for it to be dismissed, which it was in January to great controversy as well. So already you have seen the former governor's spokesman, Rich Azapardi, going after Craig Apple on social media. It's likely to be quite a barn burner as uh, these, these primaries proceed. 
All right, sticking in Albany here, members of the Albany High girls track team were suspended recently after they started a petition over whether they should be allowed to practice in sports bras. Tell us more about that. Yeah, James Allen, who just a couple of weeks ago wrote about the controversy around beads in athletes' hair and the controversy surrounding that, reported on a dispute that began a little bit more than a week ago, where a group of Albany High School girls track and field athletes practicing on a very hot day determined that it was appropriate to practice in sports bras, which is certainly not out of the realm of reasonableness, at least based on you know what we've seen from female athletes nationwide. They were told by the Albany School District's athletic director that that was not appropriate and didn't follow the district's dress code. These young women pointed out that male athletes were practicing shirtless and how wasn't that a double standard? They complied. And then after the practice, one of the athletes, uh, Jordan Johnson, a a sophomore sprinter who was a, a star for the team, started a petition that featured a photo of the team uh, posing in their sports bras before leaving the school. It, it of course, stated that this appeared to be a double standard. Later on Thursday, those athletes showed up to watch a lacrosse game. um, And according to members of the team, they were told by security guards and the athletic director that they could not attend. They were suspended the next day. This was a week ago, Friday and they were disallowed from competing in a meet on Friday night. Their suspensions went on, and they claim uh, there is some dispute as to whether or not it was about a scene at the lacrosse game where the district basically claims that foul language was used, that the young women's response was, was inappropriate, and the athletes claim that no foul language was used, though they admit that it was uh, loud and a heated dispute. So it's turned into a real mess. We're seeing lots of comments back and forth on social media. Um, I would say the district is probably getting the worst of it, without a doubt. Indeed, that's one of our top stories on the web this week. Um, I want to end on a bit of a sad note. A notable Capital Region icon has died. Tell us, who was it and what was the legacy that he left behind? Ken Screven, who uh, was most associated with CBS 6, a.k.a. WRGB, where he worked from 1977 until his retirement in 2011. He was the first black man hired to work as a reporter for a capital region television station. And in his final years, uh, really throughout his career, but also in, in retirement, He turned into a a staunch voice for diversity and against uh, racism. I guess, you know, it it relates back to the story we began with, the atmosphere that contributes to the horrible shooting out in Buffalo. Ken Screven was uh, 71. He had been battling uh, numerous uh, health conditions for for a while. Um, Benita Zahn, who worked with him, um, told Steve Barnes, who just wrote a wonderful obituary, as he tends to do, uh, that uh, Ken, I'm quoting Benita Zahn here, lived out loud and he made us all better because of it. She called him smart, irreverent, and kind. I loved him immediately and we embraced each other in every way as journalists, as members of the Capital Region community, as human beings. Just a, a remarkable life. 
Yeah, that's indeed, that is very touching. And I have fond memories of watching him growing up uh, here in the Capital Region. A great thing about working at a long-tenured daily newspaper is we have fantastic photo archives. We've got a great shot of Ken Screven in sort of a photo, a fashion shoot from 1982, where he just looks just as dapper as can be. Yes, definitely check that out on timesunion.com. All right, Casey, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll check back in with you later. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. On Tuesday, voters across the Capital Region turned out in much larger than usual numbers to vote in annual school board elections. The reason for this high turnout? A push to thwart a slate of candidates running as part of the Take Back Our Schools movement. Education reporter Kathleen Moore covered the results this week, and she joins me now. Tuesday of this week uh, was an election in the Capital Region and, you know, across the country, but we're focused here on the Capital Region. And the primary uh, races that were decided on Tuesday were school board elections, as well as some library uh, trustee elections, at least here in Albany. But school board elections were the main the main race is this time around. And traditionally, or historically, I should say, school board elections don't have, you know, the biggest draw. <laughs> they don't yeah. have the, the largest, uh, largest draw. So let's just set the scene. What what were we looking at on Tuesday here in the Capital Region? So cool. we had, for the Capital Region, a list of 35 candidates who had self-described as being part of this movement that's been variously called the Take Back Our Schools or Parents' Choice or Parents' Rights movement. It's not a, a, a well-organized, you know, co- cohesive group. They have a lot of differences of opinion. They're a, they're a loosely organized group. So we had 35 candidates running throughout um, the school districts. There was one in almost every school district, at least one. So in some uh, school districts, there were more people who aligned with that movement running, then there were seats available. In others, there might be three seats, but only one, right? Uh, As well as other people running, lots of people running. It it was amazing. I mean, in the past, I've written stories that were sort of, oh, there's not enough candidates, so it's going to have to be decided by a write-in. Oh, if anybody would like to run for school board, they only need two more candidates. (laughs) Like. It's kind of like pulling teeth to get people to run for the school board, right? Right. Well, I mean, it's unpaid. It's a huge amount of work. Um, And basically, people only come to the meetings to yell at you. I mean, what's not to love, right? Uh, Sounds like a great great gig. Right. And you can do very little. Uh, I mean, the state sets most of the curriculum. Um, The state decides a lot of the funding. It's not the most powerful gig. And like I said, it's unpaid and has very long late hours. So why all of a sudden are so many people throwing their hats in the ring? I think that when school went virtual, a lot of parents were also working virtually, obviously couldn't leave their kids alone and don't have enough like different spaces. They had to supervise their kids and make sure that they were still you know, taking their classes and all. So parents like me heard everything that their teachers were teaching. And some people said, wait, that's not how I wanted things to go. So that started people talking. 
We saw a national movement in which some people started to paint perhaps with a very large brush. So for example, there were these concerns about critical race theory uh, and whether that was leading to people teaching about racism too much or not enough in some cases, <laughs> right? And then that sort of got, got connected with social emotional learning, which is basically this idea that if you teach kids how to self-regulate, then they can handle frustration and they won't like, you know, throw their book across the room when they don't get the problems right. Mm -hmm. But that sort of got folded into this idea that maybe teachers were trying to sort of influence students unduly. And suddenly there was this national movement saying we no longer trust teachers and we want to have a lot more control over everything that is said and done and shown and read and talked about in class. And that was uh, loosely under the umbrella of parents' choice, right? That's the, the term that was bandied about? Yeah, parents' choice or parents' rights. The idea that, um, that a parent should have the right to decide what topics their child learn. And this, this, this ranged widely. There was no item that all candidates agreed on. But like, for example, some said that there should be no books that have an LGBTQ character in them. Others said LGBTQ characters are fine unless they're having sex or talking about sex. Others said, look, it's not the LGBTQ issue. It's just talking about sex. We want no books that talk about sex. So, so you see there's a wide range there. And that's just on books. Then you get into right. what you should talk about in history class or what you should talk in English class. If you're, if you're reading a book in 11th grade, there are some classic books that are often read at that point in which you sort of hear from the point of view of a person who is uh, perhaps black or perhaps enslaved and you hear their point of view and that can really have a big impact on the reader. And some parents said, whoa, we don't want our children experiencing that, thinking about that, talking about that. They should just talk about literature in some other way, some way that doesn't involve upsetting or frightening topics. So obviously very, very politically charged uh, at this point. Now, you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> and we're, you know, we're not spoiling anything truly because you've already written about it, but uh, these candidates overwhelmingly lost this week. Yeah. How did that happen? So um, when I was out there talking to voters, it was immediately obvious that there was huge turnout, much bigger than last year. Many school districts had two to three times as many voters as last year. Um, in fact, in Duanesburg, they almost had as many voters as they had in 2020 when everything was done by absentee, when most school districts wow. had more voters than ever before and probably ever since. Averill Park ran out of ballots, yes. too, right? <laughs> Averill Park ran out of ballots. They had 2,000 uh, computer-readable ballots, and they used every single one of them, and it was well before 9 p.m. They still had a line out the door. They started printing wow. like regular ballots that, that the computer can't read. And then um, putting them in a lockbox, and then they had to count them all by hand afterward. <laughs> now, in general, when it comes to school board votes, school districts will tell you that the rule of thumb is that if you see a line out the door where there's not usually a line out the door, the budget is going down. The people don't show up unless they're really angry about the budget, right? Right, because it affects their taxes. Right. So some, some superintendents speculated to me, well, if there's a line out the door and we know it's not about the budget, it's about the school board would this not suggest that the challengers are going to win, right? 
But when you look at the results, it's clear that the vast majority of those uh, newly energized voters came out solely to vote against this movement, that they roundly rejected the idea that parents should decide rather than teachers what the kids are learning, which is interesting because I did not think it was going to go that way. Now, the people that you spoke to, you know, outside the polls after they voted, they were, you know, people of all ages and walks of life, right? You know, they're not just parents who have kids in school. Yeah, there were were parents of young kids. There were parents of kids who've long grown up. There were people who don't have kids in school and never have and never planned to. Um, I mean, there were retired teachers, um, everyone. I, I, I wouldn't say that there was one group that I noticed demographically more than any other. Uh, and, and the vast majority of them, when I asked them why they came out, said, I came out to stop this movement. They were upset that politics had gotten involved. They felt that um, these political arguments about, you know, things like how to teach race need to be, you know, not part of the school. You know, let the, let the teachers keep reading the same textbooks and the same books that they have in the past uh, and keep those arguments at the, say, congressional level. What does this all mean? Like, what, I mean, obviously some of the candidates did, the from the, yes. the parents' groups did win. I mean, very small number, but some of them did. But um, as we've already said, an overwhelming number didn't. So what does this all mean? About six of them won, and I've talked to most of them, uh, and they are very, they're very realistic. They said to me things like, look, I'm one person on a board of nine. I can't make any drastic changes. Uh, there are things that they want. Uh, for example, one, two candidates told me that they are, in Dwaynesburg, told me that they are, quote, opposed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I called wow. the Dwaynesburg superintendent and said, hey, so you've got these two school board members now, new school board members in July, who uh, are opposed to this. What, what, what's your reaction? And he said, you know, look, the school district has not been and will never be opposed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he talked about how important that was and how, yes, Dwaynesburg is a mostly white, vastly white uh, school district. But he said, you know, there's still a lot kids need to learn about in terms of inclusion, including the special ed community, uh, including uh, economically disadvantaged kids in all the opportunities that other kids get. Uh, There's still a lot of ways in which kids... um, need to learn how to accept people who are different from them and find ways to connect. And so he said they're going to continue doing that, you know, whether there were school board members opposed to the phrase or not. After the break, the tulips in Washington Park are starting to fade and wither. What happens next to these iconic flowers? We'll talk to the Albany City Gardener. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Springtime in Albany's Washington Park brings blazes of color in the form of that beloved perennial flower we all know as the tulip. 
New York's capital city has been planting the bright bulbs there since the late 1940s, when the war-torn Dutch city of Nijmegen gifted 2,000 tulips in thanks for Albany coming to its aid. The tulips in the park are coming to the end of their flowering cycle now at the end of May, but that's not all she wrote for these lovely and iconic blooms. I headed over to Washington Park this week to check in with Albany City Gardener Jenna Comerford to learn what happens to them after Tulip Fest. Tulip Fest, we're talking now. Tulip Fest is two weeks ago, yep. almost. <laughs> um, and we're still seeing some pretty, pretty vibrant color, but I guess take me through what happens once Tulip Fest is over. Like, what is the process here? What are we looking at? So this year we were lucky enough to have some really big rainstorms. Uh, so we did lose a lot of petals. Uh, but the garden that you can see right here behind me, um, you'll see it's kind of faded looking, right? So it's still um, pretty vibrant, but but I can see what you mean. <laughs> but if you saw this two weeks ago, you would have been like, "Whoa, this is a whole different garden." You you put these in here. These are different tulips. So they actually fade and change color. Some will fade uh, lighter. Some of the lighter pinks will fade into like a white-looking tulip at the end. Uh, but then they start to kind of shrivel up on the edges and get a little funny looking. That's just the way the life of a tulip is. Um, but leading into that, we always have um, something to look forward to is the uh, tulip sale and the tulip dig. Um, so the Washington Park Conservancy presents this sale. Uh, they're two different days. Uh, May 28th is the tulip dig where you can actually come out and dig your own tulips. There's no sign up. You show up, first come, first serve, they go quick. <laughs> uh, it starts at nine and I tell everybody, get here early, very early. Um, People don't fight over them, do they? Uh, well, that's why we're there. <laughs> we kind of separate and, and move things around if things get a little heated, but we, we have had people like elbowing and fighting over a tulip and we're just like, come on, there's, there's plenty for everyone. So when, when people come and they dig them up, like what, what are they doing exactly? So if you have a shovel, we won't let you in. <laughs> you need to bring a garden fork. And if you don't have one, we have some to supply. The only problem is the first wave of people that get here and if they're using them, now you have to wait. So you might not get the tulip you want. Um, but so you use a garden fork and I pretty much describe it as you grab the tulips by their neck and <laughs> you put the the garden fork right into the ground at a at like about a 45 degree angle and the the fingers of the garden fork go under the bulbs and then you start pulling gently the neck of the tulips and it all loosens as you wiggle both hands um, kind of like wiggling a tooth right yeah, kind of <laughs> <laughs> sometimes they snap off people get a little too too eager um so we do ask everybody to dig and find those bulbs um, and they do. <laughs> so once you dig it up, you know, you've dig and dug it up successfully, like what, and you take it home, what do you do with it? All right, so that's when you get right to work. I know you just got tired working out here, but you need to get home and you need to get them in the ground. Uh, you want to leave their greens on them. I will suggest that you snap the seed pod off the top uh, because that's, the energy is going into the seeds instead of the bulb. Um, and that's why you leave the greens on. So the greens will actually turn yellowish brown when they're done, and that's when you cut them back. But that's sending all that energy back into the bulb. 
And when you snap that seed pod off, you're literally sending all of the energy down instead of up. These are just, I mean, they're just so striking. Like what, is that like a typical tulip variety? I, I don't know. I don't even know well, where to start. Well, <laughs> so here we are walking down the center of our okay. pop-up garden. Uh, <laughs> it's actually not staying here. Once the tulips are gone, this is going back to grass. Okay. Uh, we have um, some sports that happen here, volleyball and frisbee. Um, they really like their field here, so we're giving it back. But so you'll see this, this kind of purple blend here. So this one is called Pinotage, and it has, you can see there's um, more of like your traditional tulip shape. And then you have, um, this one is called, it's in the Veritiflora group. Uh, so it actually purposely has green through it. Oh, wow. We have doubles. Um, and then here are these striking white ones. Uh, they're in the lily family. Tulip, but lily flowering family. Oh, interesting. <laughs> is there anything else that you want to add about tulip care oh, or anything that you can think of that would be interesting to folks as long as you have good soil that doesn't hold water bulbs are pretty happy um, if you have a squirrel issue look into crown imperials they're also known as fritillaria a uh, little skunky but they're the ones i get the most question about uh, the whole time the tulips are coming up what are the pineapple tops what are the upside down flowers they're crown imperials or fritillaria and that skunky smell kind of keeps the, the rodents at bay, or at least it says they do. I mean, it kind of works for us, so. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. That's good, especially <laughs> in the city of Albany where the squirrels are relentless. Yes. Um, and you, okay, so you said soil that doesn't hold a lot of water and like in terms of like caring for them, like do you water them every day? Like what's No, the... so we actually didn't water them until after Tulip Fest. And that was only because the, the heat was coming and we knew the soil was drying out. Um, but as long as we have our normal spring weather, typically we don't water. The rain does everything for us. Uh, we had a perfect condition this year, and uh, it wasn't until after the festival that that little heat wave came in, dried everybody up. So we actually have a truck uh, with a big, huge tank and a motor on the back, and we watered everything down a couple times. Oh, great. Um, but you don't want to overwater either. Uh, that will rot the bulbs. Okay, and then in terms of sun, like, plant them in full sun, partial sun? Uh, well, they, they love full sun, okay. clearly. <laughs> There's like not much shade here. Um, but the, you can do shade. You just, you, you might get a smaller flower out of it um, and it might take much longer. Uh, so I do suggest at least six hours of sun, uh, but they will, they will come up as long as they get a little bit. And they come up every year around April, That's May? that whole group thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they all have different bloom times. Gotcha. Um, we have some that will start in April, and we have some that will start near the middle of May. Okay. Uh, so they kind of, there's like a month gap of who's opening up and when, uh, and we actually kind of plant purposely that way uh, so that a garden has something at all different times of, of the spring. Mm -hmm. So... All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back in two weeks for another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. 
Special thanks to Casey Seiler and Kathleen Moore for their contribution to this episode. 